Hallelujah that God's grace finds us. Question is how? Well, some of it's mystery. God's grace sovereignly finds us. Some of it's not as much of a mystery as we might think. God has actually told us places where His grace pools. And we know that if we go to those places, grace is going to find us. One of those is the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism. But actually, all the means of grace are places where God promises His grace will find us. A few weeks ago, I started this series by taking us to John chapter 6, the account where Jesus feeds 5,000 men, even more women and children, with five loaves and two fish, and has a lot left over. And he talks about how the people were impacted supernaturally. They weren't just after a bread factory or a bread machine. They were seeking him because that experience involved grace that touched them. And in John 6, 54 to 58, Jesus changes the words, or John in the text records different words for eat. When Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, John has Jesus in the conversation switch to a much more graphic word and to the present tense. In John 6, 54 to 58, the Greek word for chomping or gnawing or ripping like a wild animal tearing into flesh. And John has Jesus speaking in the present tense. So it's not just conversion, but Jesus says that we are to continually, constantly feed, chomp, gnaw on his flesh. How do we do that? Well, he's not primarily speaking of the Lord's Supper. He may be including thoughts of the Lord's Supper, but he's talking about abiding in Christ. He's talking about the the Spirit-filled life. He's talking about how we continually feed on Christ, how we find grace through the means of grace because God has promised His grace will meet us there. I read an article uh, this past week about gnawing on Jesus. As a matter of fact, the, the title of the article was Gnawing Jesus. And the author talks about an earthquake that occurred in Armenia, which is uh, sort of south of the Georgian Republic, um, used to be part of the Soviet Union. There was an earthquake there several years ago, and a woman was trapped under a concrete slab but she stayed alive for four or five days. She actually ultimately did survive. But the amazing thing was not just that she survived, but she was holding an infant, and the infant wasn't hers. She couldn't nurse it. It was a very young infant. She couldn't nurse it. We don't know what happened to the mother. So to keep the baby alive, she allowed the baby to gnaw on her, the woman's, lip gnawing to the place where flesh came off and it became bloody. And the baby was kept from dehydration and dying of hunger 
by literally gnawing on the lip of the woman and drinking the woman's blood. Now, that sounds gross, but it saved the child's life. And that is exactly what Christ is calling us to do in John 6. And that's what the means of grace are all about. They give us an opportunity to gnaw on the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. Not merely through the sacrament of communion, but through time in the Word, time in prayer, generosity, fasting, silence, solitude, and the sacrament of baptism as well. How do the waters of baptism offer us Jesus? Well, we're going to talk about that. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. As we dig in, we're going to learn that you can't really get a doctrine of baptism from one passage, but this passage will be a good springboard into helping us understand what baptism is from a Reformed and Presbyterian perspective. Look, folks, I get it. 60% of our church, you are not from a Presbyterian and Reformed background. I know that. I'm not going to pick any fights today. I just want you to understand why we believe what we believe. Every time we do a baptism, we have lots of kids in this church. That's lots of times. I try to just share little tidbits of why we believe what we're doing is biblical, what it means, what the purpose is, what we believe God is doing or, or promises to do. But with this Means of Grace series, I'm going to be able to spend a little bit more time explaining what baptism is all about. Now, the reason why Paul is even writing Colossians 2, 9 through 15 that deals with the topic of baptism was because after the church in Colossae was planted, there was some destructive teaching that was making its rounds among the people in the church. The destructive teaching was that Jesus and His finished work gets you started, but if you really want to experience God's favor, you need to be committed to the Mosaic law. Basically, you need to be a Christian who becomes a Jew. And if you do that, then you'll experience the power of the Spirit, the blessing of God. Not only that, but they also mixed in with this idea of becoming a Christian Jew, they also mixed in some pagan beliefs, some magical superstitious beliefs. The whole idea that there were certain religious objects that if you learned how to use it right, like maybe a magic lamp, that you could summon angels and you could ward off demons. And so there's this just crazy destructive teaching in Colossae. And so Paul writes the letter to the Colossians to say, if you've got Jesus, you need no add-ons. If if you've got Jesus, you've got all you need. Matter of fact, if you have Jesus, you have everything. There's nothing more that you can have. So keep on growing in Jesus. Keep on increasing in your understanding of what your union with Christ means. Keep on finding and discovering places of grace like the means of grace. And you'll be strengthened 
in your understanding and your experience of your union with Christ. The sacraments are not magic, but they are supernatural. And we're in danger of losing that in our spiritual culture today. And we desperately need the means of grace called baptism. So let's all stand our reverence for God's Word and follow along as I read Colossians 2, verses 9 through 15. This is God's Word. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. See that? There's no add-ons to Jesus. You have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He not only wants us to hear the Word preached, He wants us to see the Word visibly displayed in a way that changes our lives by the beauty of this means of grace. Let's pray. And so, God, we commit this time to You. God, we'll never see the truth unless You open our eyes. God, some of us have tons of baggage. Well, actually, we all do. I do. And so, Lord, would You cut through all the baggage and enable us to really see by Your Spirit what Your Word says. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, it is Father's Day, I haven't forgotten, and what you need to realize is that every single time there's a baptism, it is a celebration of our Father in Heaven, because this leads to one of the big reasons why Baptistic churches and Reformed and Presbyterian churches practice baptism differently. We believe in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition that baptism is primarily a celebration of what the Father promises to do. As opposed to the Baptistic view, which tends to be a celebration of what we are doing, which is confessing and professing and taking a stand over our newfound faith. We believe baptism is primarily a celebration of what God promises to do, not what we do. So three aspects of baptism revealing baptism as a means of grace. First of all, 
feast on the biblical framework of covenant baptism. I understand there's different views. What we need to do, however, is be willing to understand where the other view affirms its commitment to Scripture. We can disagree, perhaps, on some of the conclusions, but we need at least to, to listen to each other to see whether, in fact, what we're talking about is biblical. And I would submit to you that the Reformed Presbyterian view of baptism, if nothing else, is grounded in a biblical framework. And some of us may have never heard it. And I hope you'll get a chance to hear it today. So look at verses 11 and 12. I want you to notice one thing. Grammatically, when you get rid of all the parenthetical statements in verses 11 and 12, grammatically, this is, this is what it says. You were circumcised having been baptized. Okay? There, there's no way around it. Grammatically, that's what the text says. Verses 11 and 12, you were circumcised having been baptized. Paul clearly presents circumcision and baptism in a way that the two are very closely connected. So the point is, when you're seeking to understand baptism, whatever you think it might be, you cannot possibly understand it unless you understand circumcision. Just like with the New Testament, you can't possibly understand the New Testament unless you understand the old. And we have too many folks today that they want to they be committed to a third of the Bible. It's the whole counsel of God. Look, if, if you're looking for one verse that says sprinkle candidates for baptism and also baptize not just believers who've never been baptized, but also baptize their children. If you're looking for one verse that says that, you're never going to find it. Of course, that wouldn't be much of a feast on biblical framework, would it? That would be, that would be a morsel, a snack. No, you need to realize the Bible is a smorgasbord. It's a banquet table. It's a feast that requires the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture. It's just like the Trinity. You try to show me a verse that teaches God is God the Father's God, God the Son's God, God the Spirit's God, that's one God, it's three distinct persons, but it's not three gods. You show me a verse that teaches that. You can't because it doesn't exist. It's a systematic argument. You need to look at the whole counsel of God, and that's where many Baptistic people don't understand the Reformed faith. We're not looking for a verse. We're looking for an entire biblical framework. Now, the biblical framework is the covenant of grace. We believe as Presbyterians in what is called the paradigm of continuity. There are only two options, generally speaking, when it comes to reading the Bible the option or paradigm of discontinuity, and the option or paradigm of continuity. Here's the paradigm of discontinuity. Nothing from the Old Testament applies directly to the New Testament believer unless it's been specifically repeated by the New Testament. It's not what 
we hold to. The paradigm of continuity is everything from the Old Testament applies directly to the New Testament believer unless it's been specifically changed by the New Testament. So there's continuity as the paradigm, but there are obviously some elements of discontinuity. For instance, we don't sacrifice lambs, bulls, goats anymore. Why? Because the New Testament tells us that Christ was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. We can eat Jim and Nick's barbecue. Why? Because the text of the New Testament tells us that Jesus declared all foods clean, but also Peter had the vision declaring all foods clean. So there are some differences, but the overall paradigm is continuity. Now, if the overall paradigm of the biblical framework is continuity, and Paul clearly says it is, and I'll show you more of how the Bible's statement and testimony of itself says it is, then you can't understand things in the New Testament without understanding the things of the Old Testament. Like baptism. Clearly, Paul connects circumcision and baptism, so therefore you can't understand baptism unless you understand circumcision. Now, what's interesting about circumcision is in Romans 4.11, Paul calls it a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, that's really what baptism is, a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. But, ah, interestingly, it wasn't just new believers who were circumcised. It was male believers, if they'd never been circumcised, were circumcised, and eight-day-old male infants. As a matter of fact, not just eight-day-old male infants, but every male in the entire household. And oh, guess what? You see the continuity of households in the book of Acts, where over and over and over there are household baptisms, where someone comes to Christ and the whole household was baptized. Now, does it prove there were infants? No, but you know what it proves? Continuity. The New Testament church was carrying on just like the Old Testament church was. And here's the other thing. The covenant of grace in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And you see that continuing all through Scripture. Genesis 17, 7, I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring to be a God to you and to your children. I will be your God. You will be my people. Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation 21, 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. It's repeated over and over. Genesis three fifteen is sort of the, the covenant of grace before the covenant of grace. And God says to, the, to Satan, to the serpent, I'll put enmity, hostility between you you and the seed of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. And you, serpent, will bruise his heel. And then in Romans, Paul says the exact same thing to the Christians. In Romans 16, verse 20, Paul promises that God will soon crush Satan 
under our feet. So again and again, you see this, this principle of continuity. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, the author writes that the blood of Jesus was the blood of the eternal covenant. In our passage, in verse 13, Paul talks about sin being uncircumcision. See, circumcision is not a national sign. Circumcision is the sign of God promising to do something, of God promising to circumcise our uncircumcised flesh. In verse 13 of Colossians 2, Paul calls sin our flesh, our, our nature in Adam, he calls it uncircumcision. And God promises through the covenant of grace to circumcise our hearts. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. And again, and the hearts of your offspring, the hearts of your descendants. And then in verse 9 of our text, Colossians 2, 9, we learn that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. Okay, well, there again, that's one thing to put in your little toolbox concerning the Trinity, right? That's one of the verses of many, just like the smorgasbord of baptism, there's a smorgasbord of the Trinity. So Jesus is the one who fulfills Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. God says, I promise I will circumcise your hearts. Jesus, all the fullness of deity, lives in him bodily. Jesus then, it says in the passage, the circumcision of Christ. You've been circumcised, Colossians 2, with or by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the circumcision that Christ performs, which is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that God promises to circumcise our hearts. Every single one of us, before we can believe, need our hearts circumcised. Jesus came to do that. And in the Old Testament, it prefigures Baptism, just like Paul talks about circumcision and baptism in the same passage in Colossians 2, in Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, here's what God says. I, covenant of grace, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will circumcise your hearts. He says, I will cleanse you from all of your idols. I will pour out my spirit upon you, and I will move you to keep my commandments. And we see here in Colossians 2, Paul talking about circumcision and baptism. Here's the other thing. My baptistic friends say, Bob, show me a verse where it says we're supposed to sprinkle and baptize kids as well as adults. You know what I say? No. You show me a verse that says we're not supposed to. See, right there, the paradigm of continuity versus discontinuity. No, unless I see clear evidence we're not supposed to baptize children, you've got to show me that we're supposed to stop. Why? Because for 2,000 years of church history, Old Testament church history, the children always received the sign of the righteousness that comes by faith. By the way, believer circumcision was not a problem to God in the Old Testament. Right? Circumcision was sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
And yet, eight-year-old elephants who couldn't possibly have that faith still received the sign and the seal of the righteousness that comes by faith because it didn't have primarily the focus of the faith of the child. It had primarily the focus of the promise of the action of God. And this is why it's a sacrament for the whole church. It's not just for the family. It's not just for the parents. It's not for just for the child. It's even for an adult, not for the adult. It's not his profession of faith. It's more for the church of God giving a picture of the gospel. If you would repent and trust in Jesus, I will wash you. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. This is the, this is the picture of the gospel with the preaching of the gospel. And that's the purpose. And then... Not only would we think that if it changed, there would be evidence in the New Testament. On the contrary, there's actually evidence that it continues, that continuity continues. Acts 2, 38 and 39, the Pentecost sermon. See, now, I hope you're about to hear a verse that you've never heard this way before. The promise is for you and your children. The whole group at Pentecost, they were all Jewish, every one of them. And when Peter says the promise is for you and for your children, they're saying, well, of course, Peter, that's the way it's always been. We've got to stop listening to the New Testament with Alabama ears. We've got to start listening to the New Testament with Jewish ears. If you're an Alabama fan and I say roll tide, we just connected. If you're an Auburn fan, I say, War Eagle, we just connected. Peter and the community in Jerusalem at Pentecost connected when he said, the promise is for you and for your children. Covenant of grace, continuity, absolutely. Our kids still are included in the covenant promises. And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. And then, if you're still not convinced... Go to 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where Paul says, stay in your marriage if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. In other words, God approves of the marriage because you're in it now. By the way, don't marry non-Christians. But if you have, you stay there. Then Paul says, Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. You'll never understand 1 Corinthians 7.14 unless you understand the Jewish understanding of the covenant of grace. Well, of course they're holy. They're different than the pagans. The children of believers are different covenantally than the pagan children. They're Holy. Doesn't mean they're saved, but it could. It means they're in a unique relationship. By the way, I'm on point one. I really believe this stuff, folks. Church history is not necessarily an indicator of the truth of a biblical framework. But can we just go there for a second? From A.D. 30, 33, depending on the dating system, there only was one church from, from A.D. 30 
to, to 1054, the Roman church, do they practice covenant baptism, baptism of believers and their children? Yes. From AD 30 to 1517, there are only two churches. 1054, the great schism between East and West, Catholic Church in the West, Orthodox Church in the East. Do the Orthodox Christians practice covenant baptism, believers and their children? Yes. 1517, Lutheran Church was born. There are only three churches in the history of the world. Do Lutherans practice covenant baptism, baptizing believers and their children. Yes. 1536, Calvin writes the Institutes. Presbyterian Reformed churches are born. Do Presbyterians? Yes. Then the Reformation went up north. The Anglican church was formed. The Anglicans practiced covenant baptism, baptizing believers and their children. Yes. Then out of the Anglicans, the Methodists were founded. Do the Methodists practice covenant baptism? Do they baptize believers and their children? Yes. And then the, the Episcopalians came to the U.S. colonies. Did the Episcopalians practice covenant baptism, baptizing believers and their children? Yes, 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 yes. Living where we live, not just Alabama, but the United States, you'd think the majority view was believer baptism. It is not. Historically, it's the minority view. Then you have these folks, and by the way, we're not being mean, and we're not sort of be disparaging. They're godly people, right? These are friends. But then the Baptists come along and say, please, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm just trying to describe church history. They come along and they say, everybody else is wrong. And they've been wrong. Everybody else is wrong and they've been wrong. We should only be baptizing people who profess faith in Christ. Biblically and historically, how it ever caught on, I don't know. Something to think about. Feast on the biblical framework covenant baptism. And by the way, just call the restaurant. <laughs> no. We're gonna, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to put this sermon together with the 815 sermon. And if you listen to both, you'll, you'll get both. Okay, secondly, drink in the supernatural power of covenant baptism. I want you to realize that this isn't just a mere symbol. God promises grace. This is a means of grace. It's not a mere symbol. It's a sign, but it's a sign that points to the reality. As a matter of fact, sometimes Scripture is confusing because it so mixes the sign with the thing signified that it's a little scary. Like 1 Peter 3, 21, talking about Noah's Ark, baptism corresponding to what happened in the flood. Baptism now saves you. We know denominations that believe that, right? If, if you are converted without being baptized, you're going to hell if you die. Well, that's ridiculous, okay? We need to, we need to interpret the, the, the unclear by the clear, and clearly the Bible, rest of the Bible says that's not true. But the point is, baptism as a sign pointing to the reality of salvation, there was a mysterious connection, and it was a powerful connection, so that Peter can actually say, baptism now saves you. Matter of fact, even in our text, it talks about 
It talks about uh, putting off the flesh, the flesh being stripped off like circumcision. It talks about being raised from the dead. It talks about being forgiven, 11, 12, 13, 15. It talks about the supernatural victory over evil. And when Romans 4.11 says that circumcision was a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, this is what Paul's talking about. It was a sign that pointed to the reality. It wasn't the reality itself, but it pointed to the reality. However, the connection between the sign and the reality (laughs) is more than symbolic. Now, what exactly and precisely is the connection? I don't know. Neither did Calvin. Calvin said, I can't explain this. All I do is experience it. By the way, how's that for the frozen chosen? I love that. We need more Calvins in the Calvinistic denominations. He said, I can't explain it rationally, but I experience it. I experience the power and presence of God through the sacrament. Here's the bottom line. Are sacraments, as Augustine said, a visible form of an invisible grace, or is it simply a picture of our pledge to follow Christ? That's what it comes down to. Is baptism a picture of our pledge to follow Christ, or is it primarily a picture of God's pledge to fulfill the sign in our lives and in our children's lives. Are we doing something in baptism? Or is God primarily doing something? You know, there's such a tendency to de-supernaturalize the Christian life. Like when it comes to church discipline, restoration. It's supernatural. People thumb their nose. Ah, go ahead, Bob, do what you need to do. I'll be fine. Okay, well, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul says, I've handed... That, that we should hand such a person over to Satan who's unrepentant. Now, you know what that means? That means the, the, the church, the local church that we saw represented here by the officers today, that, that local church is an umbrella of protection against the fiery darts of Satan. And when someone exercises and exhibits such unrepentance that they thumb their nose at the leadership of the church, Paul says you hand that person over to Satan. What does that mean? That means the protective umbrella of the church is supernaturally taken down and that person is now open to fiery darts they've never been open to before. Paul repeats the same thing in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. I have handed them over to Satan that their flesh might be destroyed so that their souls might be saved. There's an umbrella that is protective from the local church, and when people are disciplined, it is supernaturally removed, and they are supernaturally exposed to things that we hope will bring them to repentance. There's a guy named Robert Orner who's written a great book, Why Baptizing Your Child Matters, and he talks about umbrellas. He talks about the umbrella of common grace where God restrains sin in society. We need that so badly, don't we? What happened at St. Stephen's? We, we need common grace. It's only common grace that's going to protect us in this church. Trust me, we have a protection team. There's all kinds of stuff going on you have no idea about every Sunday, every time this church meets in any way, in any kind of context. But ultimately, we need Christ to protect us. That's common grace. That's the big umbrella. Second umbrella is the umbrella that goes up at baptism. 
There's an umbrella that goes up at baptism. This is why I tell you, does, does baptizing your child matter? Does it matter if you take communion? Let's, let's talk about different sacrament. I think we know it matters if we take communion. Does it matter if your kid's baptized? I, I believe there is. Now, if you're not in this paradigm, well, then we'll know it wouldn't matter to you. And, and you're okay to have that view. I'm not going to come after you. But I think it matters. And so the, the umbrella goes up when a child is baptized. I think it also goes up when a person never been baptized comes to Christ is also baptized. And then third umbrella is, of course, when the fulfillment of the baptism occurs and someone actually comes to Christ. So there's supernatural power. Just like in the Word. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It is the power to divide the thoughts and intentions of the soul. The sacraments do too. God supernaturally authenticates and affirms in the hearts of believers who come to the sacrament in faith and observe it in faith. God supernaturally authenticates the reality of our forgiveness, the reality of our death to sin, the reality of Satan no longer being our ruler, the reality of actually being forgiven and being sons and daughters of God. It supernaturally is sealed to our minds and hearts and consciences when there's a baptism. And then thirdly and finally, savor the pastoral encouragements of covenant baptism. Does it even matter? Well, the whole idea of Colossians 2 was the Colossian Christians were being insecure because they were hearing they needed something in addition to Christ. They needed add-ons. And Paul referred to baptism as, you got it all. This is a symbol of you getting it all in Christ. So there is a pastoral encouragement. There's strength. There's confidence and comfort that occurs through baptism. It matters. Let me ask you this. How do you raise your children? This will, this will really differentiate the views. As Presbyterians, we raise our children as covenantally loved and protected. And we pray they'll never know a day when they didn't know they knew Jesus. The other view is you treat your kid as a pagan. No difference between them and children of non-Christians except for they maybe go to church. And yet, the other side still wants to dedicate See, God has embedded in every Christian parent the longing for their child to come to Christ and to be dedicated to God. But Presbyterians have actually a theological foundation. It's the covenant of grace and the way things have happened all throughout the Old Testament church and how Peter said it's going to continue to happen in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. What are you going to do with that verse? Again, I know we're not pointing to one verse, but what are you going to do with that one verse? The children of at least one believing parents are holy. What's that mean? Okay, it may not mean they're saved. I get that. But it means something. <laughs> if you're from a Baptistic view, what's it mean? Apart from the covenant, I don't think you can make any sense of it. Losing a child. I've had to walk with 
numerous families over the 33 years I've been here. And I do believe I can give comfort to Christian families. But it's grounded in a theological foundation. It's not grounded in subjectivism and emotionalism. Like, I struggle to give hope to non-Christians who've lost a child. God, God may, he may, but where do, where do you see that all, Christi- all babies go to heaven? Where do you see that? You don't see that. There's nothing in there about that. But you see over and over again that there is a covenantal relationship with a child and God if that child is in a Christian home and acknowledged by baptism. The beauty of the gospel always strengthens grace. And so in the old covenant, the the church is a minor. By the way, that's the only difference in the Old and New Testament. It's the same church, same belief system, but the church in the Old Testament was a minor. It had guardians. It had more laws before it could enter into any kind of inheritance. The New Testament church is the church that has come of age, the church that is an adult. And it has brand new rights and privileges, but it's still the same person. The heir has just gone from a child to being an adult. And when the covenant of grace becomes fully known in the New Testament, you would expect that grace would be broadened. But if you suddenly remove children from the sign of the covenant, you've not broadened grace, you've restricted it. For all of Old Testament church history, children receive the sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. And now you're telling me all of a sudden children aren't included? And the beauty of that principle is even revealed that that only men and little boys could be circumcised. Baptism replaced circumcision because now men and women, boys and girls, they can all be baptized. There's great pastoral comfort and strength and confidence that flow out of covenant baptism. Many of you know I just go back from London. We did a gospel waltz retreat with Mark Jackson. We got another uh, team heading over there doing a Bible club. And during one of the uh, afternoons, I was able to get away for a a couple hours, and and, uh, we went to, I think it's called Pudding Street. I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, Pudding Lane, I'm sorry, Pudding Lane. And it's where the great London fire of 1666 took place. It burned for four days. It destroyed the city. And recently, after 356 years, uh, they have begun actually commemorating and celebrating the great fire of London. You think, why would you celebrate a fire that destroyed all of London? Well, because historians point back and say that was actually the beginning of the London Renaissance. That was really the beginning of of the renewal and uh, renovation of the great city of London. And so it's actually found uh, historically as this is when the tide turned. And so they commemorate it by building a wooden model of the ancient or medieval city, and then they just set it on fire, and they watch it burn. They think, that's pretty sick, actually. (laughs) But is it? Isn't that what we do every time there's a baptism? Aren't we pointed to the blood of Christ that was spilled because he was nailed to a cross? 
aren't we reminded that we need to drink his blood and eat his flesh? It's actually not sick at all. It's one of the most powerful means of grace that you could ever imagine. And it's only found in the local church. And it's an encouragement to believers. It's a challenge to unbelievers. We raise our children in the knowledge of their baptism, calling them to continue to exercise faith. I hope Presbyterian children have the most boring testimony of anybody around, that they struggle to even know what to say because they think it's so boring. I've, I've never known a day when I wasn't a Christian. Now, that freaks some of you out. But I think that's actually the normal testimony of most Presbyterian children. I don't know of a day when I wasn't a Christian. But they have been raised in view of the sign and seal that reminds them of the gospel in picture form. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. I do pray that we would uh, be unified. Lord, this doesn't need to divide us. There's so much that we're on the same page on. But we do pray that we would show each other respect and dignity, listen to each other, learn from each other. And Father, again, we, we just want to know what you want us to do in your word. We just want to follow the means of grace that you've made available to us. And so, God, thank you for this means of grace. And we pray that uh, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ, today would be the day that you used talk about the sacrament to bring them to Christ. Lord, for um, adults who were children, who were baptized, that they would be challenged by this. Are they living in light of their baptism? Lord, for those of us who have already made professions of faith, are we seeking to improve upon our baptism by growing in the means of grace, by growing in Christ and our experience of our union in Christ. So God, please pour out your spirit, another sign of baptism. Pour out your spirit, God, and enable us to live new lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and hear the benediction. Again, is the Christian life supernatural? Why are we even pronouncing a benediction if it's just pomp and circumstance? God says when, when an elder of the church, duly ordained and installed, pronounces the benediction, God actually blesses. Christian life, so cool. It's so supernatural. Receive it now. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Amen.